This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us again on Doing Translational Research. Um, I'm Chris Wildeman. I'm the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research, and I'm here today with Phyllis Moen, a very special guest, even though all of our guests are special, of course. Um, Phyllis holds the McKnight Presidential Chair in Sociology at the University of Minnesota. She studies occupational careers, gender, families, and well-being over the life course, including the frequently obsolete Social, cultural, and policy ecologies in which lives play out. I feel like I need to know more about those things. Um, she spent 25 years here at Cornell, um, and so we're incredibly happy to have her back. Um, and as director, I'm especially happy to say that she founded the Bronfenbrenner Life Course Center, um, which was essentially the precursor to BCTR in 1992. Um, so I feel like we have a bunch of stuff to talk about today. Sure. Um, so thanks so much for joining us. Yes, I'm pleased to be here. Um, so let's let's go off script a little bit. And sure. Just uh, what were the best things for you about about being here? About being at Cornell. Well, first my colleagues, Yuri Bronfenbrenner was here at that time, and it was a amazing to be able to continue to learn and grow while I myself was a professor. So that was important. I think my colleagues. The other thing, I really love the students here. The students here are great, and I love the community. Great. Well, we're happy to get you back, even if it's only for, what, 36 hours. Still happy to have you here. Um, So to shift a little bit to research, um, how would you summarize sort of your main research interests or put a different way, sort of what big questions do you think of your research as trying to address? Yes, I had to think about this a little bit. And I think it's how to foster and sustain the health and well-being of women and men of different ages and life stages, especially in these times of major social change, major disruptions. Given demographic changes, people are living longer. The large boomer cohort is retiring Uh, changes in uh, technologies that make it uncertain what careers or work will look like, Uh, changes in the global economy, and the reduced social safety net. And what do you see, so so you mentioned sort of a lot of challenges to maintaining health and well-being. What do you, what has your research shown are sort of the most effective strategies for maintaining health and well-being? Well, as a sociologist, I'm less interested in personal solutions, private solutions, and more interested in social solutions. So part of promoting health and well-being is remaining integrated into society. And I think that some people are excluded from the major institutions of contemporary life, and that has very debilitating consequences. Interesting. Okay. That's great. not that people are excluded to hear more about your research. Right. And uh, the, other, the other issue is uh, the uh, old templates are no longer applying, and that's creating a lot of stress, a lot of uncertainty, and a lot of risk, including health risk. Okay. Like unemployment, for example. 
Yeah. Unemployment is at a historic low, but there's a great sense of you might lose your job and it might happen tomorrow. And that's very hard to live with and to thrive under that um, umbrella. And so one of the areas of your research that um, that I know best and that I actually read a bunch of in graduate school um, is sort of on work-family balance, work-life balance, and especially how that engages with sort of health and well-being more broadly. I was curious if if you could talk to us a little bit about kind of what you see as the core findings in that research and how it could help us think about um, employment and well-being. I really don't like the term balance, I have to confess, even though I used it in my earlier research, because it implies it's a private trouble. And frequently, especially women, say I need to balance better as if it's their problem. I have come to feel that it's a problem of the way work is structured. We have this real mismatch between jobs that were designed for breadwinners with full-time homemakers and the reality that all adults from the household are typically employed. And so this creates a fundamental um, misfit between work and family and personal lives. And to really, really fix it, we have to change work. That's my, my uh, conclusion from all the work I have done, that what's wrong are not families and not individuals, but the way work is organized. And how would you how would you organize things differently? What are I, I think I probably know what some of the things you would suggest sure. are, but what what are some of the specific ways in which you think we could organize work differently? Well, I think there are three fundamental mismatches. First, as I mentioned, is a time mismatch. The idea that you're supposed to spend a lot of time on the job and and at the same time have to have enough uh, emotional and uh, actual time for your families. And this is just really hard to do when all of the adults are working. It's, um, it's very, very difficult because jobs have become more intense so that people expect you to work longer. New technologies mean that you can be... Um, uh, expected to be available on weekends, evenings, to do your email in the early mornings. And so work has expanded. People are expected to do more with less, even as they have home and personal responsibilities. So this is a fundamental stressor. That's one. Another one is this life course mismatch, the idea that careers, you do career building at the same time you do family building. And so what is happening is people are delaying getting married, delaying having kids, having fewer kids or none at all to, in order to fit in this little box the way work is organized for white males in the 1950s. So we really need to change uh, the, the career path and, and create uh, opportunities for timeouts. You know, in, in football, people make a little tea and they say timeout and everybody says, oh, yeah, that's okay. But we don't provide timeouts for raising children, for caring for older people, and for caring for ourselves. The third mismatch is the risk safety net mismatch, that jobs are increasingly feeling insecure and uncertain. Young people, as well as older workers, and everyone in between are not sure that their jobs will be sustainable. And there's, so they try to put 
spend more time on the job often to look like, oh, I'm so necessary for this job, you have to keep me. So we have to, to, to write these mismatches to make work better fit the rest of life. Yeah, that's great. It, it, it's interesting. I have, I have three kids under eight right now, and uh, I always think it's interesting when we talk about these timeouts. Um, it just feels like almost all of our parental leave policies were designed as though we thought people were going to have like 20 children mm-hmm. and we want to make sure that they're only gone for like three total years or something. Yes. Um, but not even three total years. I mean, it's really very little and often unpaid and, and we don't recognize other events that happen in people's lives. The, the broken leg or whatever of the kid that you have to take care of right then and especially caregiving for uh, elderly parents and infirm relatives. This is going to be the real issue, I think, of the next uh, decade. In the past, it's been caring for young children. And that's a real issue, but that's now overlaid with families that are often doing both, caring for children and older parents. Right. So shifting a little bit... um all of this research seems like it's incredibly policy relevant and you'd have to be sort of really engaged with community stakeholders to gain these insights. I guess I just wanted to hear a little bit about over the course of your career, how you've engaged with community stakeholders and community organizations and what some of the, um, what some of the joys and difficulties of doing that have been. What I've, what I've tried to do I just received a, um, a, in Minnesota, they have this 50 over 50 award where they give 50 awards to people who are 50 and older. And I received one last year and it was for being a disruptor. So I'm trying to disrupt uh, institutions. I've worked with two, uh, in many, in um, Minnesota, I've worked with with two large corporations, and here with various corporate here in uh, Cornell and the F- Finger Lakes region, region with various corporations, trying to change the way that they organize work, especially uh, including a randomized field experiment, trying to create more flexibility and give workers control over when, where, and how they work. And we find that people are a lot more productive, they sleep better, they're healthier, and they're more likely to stay on their jobs if they have more flexibility. So employers are one group that I've tried to work with. The other thing I'm trying to do is disrupt higher ed. And uh, so I wrote this book on how we need to engage older uh, Americans in their communities, in work, and in volunteer work. And I decided the problem is there's no blueprints for how to get there. So say you retire from your career job, now you have a good 30 years of healthy life before you have any kind of frailties that we associate with old age. How are you going to fill those 30 years? And so I created uh, the University of Minnesota Advanced Careers Initiative, inviting people who are right now boomers in their 50s and 60s and early 70s to come back to campus to try to figure out what they want to do next with their lives, their, their encore career. 
Hmm. And and I believe that universities can't just be for 18 to 22-year-olds. They've got to be places of learning for people of all ages. And so I'm trying to make a tiny change that will hopefully have reverberations uh, throughout uh, higher ed. Okay, that's that's great. So what... I mean, it sounds like you've done a bunch of amazing things in this domain. What was sort of the most frustrating experience? Or what was the employer that you've engaged with that you had the most difficulty with? Um, Don't say Cordell. No. (laughs) No. Uh, I think the most frustrating is that change is hard. People don't want to change. Organizations don't want to change. And, And institutions generally especially higher ed, I think, are reluctant to reinvent themselves and to have change happen. Uh, They go kicking and screaming into it, but it's our job to try to make those changes, to get rid of outdated templates and norms and laws and policies and to, to make us live in the 21st century, not in the middle of the 20th century. Hmm. So this might be a good sort of transition for us to think about sort of what you see as kind of the two or two or three key contributions that you'd want listeners to take away from, from your sort of research career. I realize that you've worked in a bunch of different areas, so these might cohere or they might be totally different sorts of things. First, I think it's just recognizing the problem that everything, the way we organize the work-family relationships, work, careers, uh, education, retirement, everything is out of date. We need to recognize that we're in the middle of a major transformation, the digital revolution, and that this, the old ways of working and living simply are not working anymore. This is really hard to see. It's as if you were on the farm uh, bef- before the Industrial Revolution and you can't really see around the corner as to what's happening. Uh, we're there. And I often say that I'm a sociologist. I often say that if we were living around the Industrial Revolution in the beginning of it, that a lot of sociologists would be studying agriculture because we tend to look back, not forward. And yet, this uh, higher ed, especially the social and behavioral sciences, were created around times of social change, that we've got to understand social change. So we need everything that's up in it, and that we need to reinvent the, the rules and um, regulations of workplaces and universities for 21st century realities. Finally, um, I quote Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who said, if you really want to understand something, try to change it. Great. Those are good. So I, I guess the the final question I'd have for you today, and this has been really fun for me, and I know Carrie has been so happy to have you back. Um, can you, if you could make one sort of real world change, either based on the research that you've done or just more broadly, what would that be? Well, it is changing work. And giving people more autonomy and the and you know more second chances more more second careers third careers fourth careers you shouldn't be just because say you didn't finish college or you uh 
you didn't even go to college. That shouldn't be a template for the rest of your life. Or say you have a job that you hate. It's terrible to think that you have to stay in that job for the next 30 years. So we need to have ways to uh, get off the train and get back on, both to have a more sane way of living, but also for, uh, for as I said, health and well-being, that, that people will do amazing and creative, innovative work, paid or unpaid, but they can't do it if they're exhausted and burnt out. And they can't do it if you don't give them that second chance. The best policy, I think, one of the best policies that we've ever had was uh, after World War II, the GI Bill. And the GI Bill gave people second chances. And that's what I'd like to see. Great. Well, a sociologist actually ending on a hopeful note is a is a rarity. So we should definitely wrap up this episode before you change okay. your mind. Thanks so much Thank for joining you. us, Phyllis. But wow, you know, why do I have to go back to post-World War II to find the policy that might... <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. That's right. I mean, we just don't have <clears throat> any. Yeah. What would you say? Let me interview you now, Chris. <sighs> if you could change um, one thing. Yours is probably about recidivism or something, or not um, put people in jail for stupid things. I mean, I, so I, I will say, I think the, I think the topic of second chances dovetails well with the criminal justice system. And I think probably cuts across all of society Mm -hmm. pretty well at this point. Um, I mean, I think we're too inflexible with people initially, um, and then too unwilling to give them second chances. Yeah, or third or fourth. Or third or fourth. Um, it shouldn't be over. Right. Yeah. No, that's right. So I think, I mean, that would that would be something that I think um, we could do. I mean, I yeah, I think thinking more broadly about sort of Community reinvestment um, also strikes me as kind of an especially key policy thing that we could do just because many of the, I, I, I guess, just speaking from my mo- my own experience, trying to juggle, you know, work, family, leisure. Would it be nice if you could take three years right, right. now? It would be super nice. And then you can you give them in that 30 years you have later down the road. Right. Part-time then. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think, but I guess the thing that I've been thinking about, and, you know, I think this applies within criminology, I think it applies within the labor force, um, is well-to-do folks Mm -hmm. can often have the resources to paper over the cracks with these things. Like, I was certainly engaged in criminal activity when I was younger, but I was able to avoid any real consequential contact with the criminal justice system. I'm pulled in a million different directions now, but we have the resources financially to make those things manageable. And so I think really thinking about reinvestment in low-income communities in ways that acknowledge that they currently lack the resources to be able to 
deal with some of these like emergent 21st century kind yeah, of Yeah, and what I should have talked about too is the idea that some people don't have enough work hours and they want to work more and they need to work more for the money and they can't get those jobs. Some of them go to their job and are told you have to go home today after they've commuted all that way because they're not needed. Right. Um, the, the other thing is I think we may have this. I think it, I'm more hopeful maybe than you are. Because I believe that uh, given that people are going to be laid off of good jobs, that we're going to have to have some going back and retraining and maybe even like a year of public service, which is a way of paying people. And we need a lot of public service work to be done. So that would be revitalizing your communities. If somebody could get a public service job, if they, if they don't, you know, devolve if we think of, and that everybody has, you know, has almost an obligation to do that a couple of times in their lives. That, but, you know, a lot of things have changed that I wouldn't have thought would have changed, so I'm optimistic. about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.